This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another edition of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. So we're coming up to Genesis chapter 6, which begins the story of Noah. Now, Sam, anybody who anybody who lives in American culture, let's say, mm-hmm. even if they're not somebody that goes to church, they're not a Christian, they've heard the story of Noah and the ark. Yeah, and it's it's actually like when you step back and think about it, it's the first worldwide judgment that God lays down on the earth. It's actually this, while it has this beautiful redemptive moment in it where God spares Noah and his family, it's actually something that's that's a pretty a pretty dreadful judgment when you think about it and yet if you go downstairs into our preschool you know we decorate the walls with pictures of Noah's ark and all the animals and we treat it like it's a really happy story which from Noah's perspective you know God <laughs> saves him that's great uh, but this is actually one of the first times where we see God's justice and his holiness uh, come down upon the world in a way that prior to this point we hadn't seen yeah. Um, and so this is going to be – there's only two worldwide judgments of humanity that are in the Bible. One is in the days of Noah, and the second one is going to come at the end when you read the book of Revelation and the final judgment and the return of Christ. That's the second worldwide judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, when Jesus talks about it, he says it will be as it was in the days of Noah. And so as we're entering into the story – when Jesus says, you know, the final judgment that's going to come on the earth, it's going to be like it was in the days of Noah. So we should have ears when we're going through this story to think, okay, what was it like in the days of Noah? Well, there is one thing that it has here in Genesis chapter 6 that I would say is unique <laughs> to the <laughs> yeah. days of Noah. Yeah, right, so the beginning, yeah. The very sure. beginning of it is um, Genesis chapter 6, uh, the first four verses set up the story of a really interesting uh, group of people <laughs> called the Nephilim. Mm-hmm. Uh, chapter 6, verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Um, (laughs) This has always been one of the more interesting stories to bring up at, like, your local Bible study. You know, it's like, (laughs) that's in the Bible? That's just wild. Um, And it is. one. It is wild. It is kind of one of those wild stories. So let's say that, that... um, we have this group of people here that have talked about the Nephilim, and then there's two groups. It says that the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, and that these children were these mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. There are a lot of theories about who the Nephilim were. Well, actually, I say a lot of theories. There's probably two or three theories about who the Nephilim were. Um, I've heard it expressed that this is talking about the line of of Cain and the line of Seth. So, so like you but for some reason all the godly people become like sons <laughs> and then it's the daughters of Cain that are bad. 
And so you run into a real problem there. Yeah. Like, so that theory uh, struggles. A lot of people hold to that, you know. So, yeah. But it omits the, the, the children of, that are not believers and omits and, – and then omits the sons of Cain. So the other theory that we that we hear brought out is this idea that there was some sort of a supernatural being here that they're talking about the sons of God, uh, the Nephilim, talking about basically fallen angels or angelic mm-hmm. beings, supernatural beings. Now that is based on, in part on the fact that later in the Book of Genesis. You hear the Nephilim brought up again, thereby making a connection between the Nephilim after the flood and the Nephilim before the flood, which could mean that there's just two different groups of Nephilim, that Nephilim <laughs> could be a name that describes a certain type of person and that, that that's just too difficult, or yeah, it could the be literal, The literal word in Hebrew, Nephilim, comes from the Hebrew verb nephal, which is fallen. It means to fall, and so literally Nephilim in Hebrew translates to be fallen ones. And so it's not a good name. <laughs> you know, it's it's saying the fallen ones were on the earth in those days and also afterward. And then they say these were these mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. You know, obviously making reference to a special class of people. Mm-hmm. The imagination runs wild here. And, you know, I love the – I grew up reading comic books and stuff like that. And so there's a part of me that – kind of enjoys this idea of this sort of a supernatural thing and these 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 men that were in some way superhuman you know that mm-hmm. these mighty like men demigods yeah that sort of thing like hercules sort of thing um do you feel like there's any credence to that or is that just you know too many comic books influencing so us? i i'm just going to admit on the on at the outset that i take a position on this passage that's very much in the minority okay um most people because they think that they're the bible's trying to accommodate the days of you know when human beings believed in these demigods that were everywhere you know half human half god right and so the idea and and credence for that comes when it says that the sons of god saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took them as their wives as they chose. Like all throughout the Bible after this, that expression, the sons of God, is almost always referring to the angelic realm. Mm -hmm. And so like if you go to Job in in chapter 1 verse 6 or in chapter 2 verse 1, it refers to the sons of God and it's referring to angels and Job 38, you know, it, it it's referring to angels and, and Daniel 3, uh, 25, it appears as one as though a son of God is in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're almost always heavenly beings. Throughout the Bible, that expression, sons of God, is is referring to angels. And if you fast forward, so, you know, we could, most people would be comfortable to dismiss that and go, wait a minute, angels are having relationships with women? Like, what in the world's going on? And there's something where a lot of people want to run away from that, but the New Testament kind of doubles down in a lot of places. Um, so when you get to Second Peter chapter 2, it says, God did not spare the angels, uh, but saved Noah. And so like what it's talking about there, Second Peter 2 verse 4 says, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment— if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what was going to happen 
and if he rescued Lot. Now, this is getting a little confusing, but he's pairing two things together, and then he's pairing two things together. So he's saying God did not spare the angels, but he saved Noah. Then he says he did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah, but he saved Lot. And so these are pairs that are going together, but it's saying in the flood the angels were judged for their behaviors as well. Mm -hmm. And so these sons of God were were judged. And then you get into one of the more famous passages that have to do with this period of fallen angels, and we find that in the book of Jude, which is only one chapter long, but if you go to (laughs) – which is nice. Which makes it easy, yes. The references are simple. (laughs) So it's Jude – Verse 6, it says, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound in everlasting change for judgment on the great day. And so you have this idea that there's, there's fallen angels that are still active in this world. We call it the demonic realm. And they're, they're still free, but for those angels that abandoned their abode, their home, where they were allowed to go and entered into these relationships with women – these angels are now already being kept in darkness. And so this isn't still happening. It was done away with at the flood. Those angels were dealt with and put away. That's probably the more common or the most popular interpretation of this. And people believe that the Nephilim are these children that are born between the sons of God, meaning these fallen angels and and women, the daughters of men. And so they created these, you know, Nephilim, which are stunning people. Right. Um, And then you have, you know, another view that says, well, it wasn't actually the angels having the sexual encounters, but it was these demonically possessed men that the angels were operating through Mm -hmm. um, to bring them through. And then one of the the position that I hold – um, but loosely, you know, this isn't something you should split a church over. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> it's it's pretty pretty wild stuff that that nobody feels super absolutely confident in that I'm aware of. Um, but I think that the Nephilim and the relationship between the sons and daughters, sons of God and the daughters of men, are separate. Um, okay. So the, there's a professor from. Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, who has a YouTube on, a YouTube video on this that's really well done. And what he says is the Nephilim, so if you look at verse 4, it mm-hmm. says the Nephilim, which is the fallen ones, were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went into the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were heroes of old men of renown. And so what he says is, okay, we take the Nephilim, and it's it's like there's a clause in between them. Okay. He wants you to know that the world was unbelievably wicked, that really fallen men were on the earth in those days, and that's when the angels were violating their abode, having sex with with women and having children by them. But it says the Nephilim was already – they were already on the earth in those days, and then also afterward, even after the angels got cut off – from being able to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And those, the Nephilim, these really fallen people, were heroes of old. They, and what that really means is mighty men. Um, it's a bad translation, again, ESV. It's it's the same kind of language that's used when we get to, to Genesis chapter 10 when it's describing Nimrod. A mighty man and men of renown is someone who's making a name for himself again. And that's going to be a theme in the Old Testament. People who are mighty, strong in their own accord, and they're wanting to make a name for themselves rather than making a name for God. Mm-hmm. And the Nephilim are going to show up after the flood as well, which 
The problem then becomes, and this is where all this goes into confusion if we haven't lost everybody already, (laughs) um, is the Nephilim show up again in Numbers 13. Right. And it's it's when the spies come back. They're coming out of slavery from Egypt, and Moses sends the spies into the land – and they come back, and they were like the, they were giants, you know. They we were like grasshoppers in their in their sight, and they, they're referring to the Nephilim that were in the land, mm-hmm. um, Goliath, the Anakim, which is another race of people, are going to be, you know, really really tall people, you know, nine feet tall, um, and so they're saying they're still in the land. And by the way, one of the interesting things, if you go into Egyptian records, the Egyptians record. The end the land where Philistia is, um, where Goliath would come from, that there were massive people, mm-hmm. and they measured them according to cubits, which is the, the measure, ancient world's measurement, that would be 9 to 10 feet tall. And the, the Egyptians record people being in that region of the same height, which is interesting. So, uh, and just for our people that are playing along at home, a cubit was what the length of an average person's forearm. So, is that isn't that yeah, how they it goes, measured it? So, if you if you straighten out your hand, going from your elbow to your middle finger tip, that's the measure of a cubit. And so, it's generally between eighteen to twenty inches long. Right. So, it's not a precise. It's not no. like we could say a cubit is the same thing as a meter. It's not like a precise measurement, but yeah, generally, ex- it's it's about that size, about that length. Yeah. Yep. Now, um, I, the other thing that I think we should let people know, again, if you're somebody that, that maybe hadn't heard any of this before, you're like, fallen angels. <laughs> what in the world is Pastor Sam talking about? Mm-hmm. But there was a time, we're told, um, when one of God's created beings, angelic beings, Lucifer, we're told, was the, the brightest of the angels. Basically, I mean, he was, he was really special. Even for an angel, Lucifer was special. He managed to get about a third of the angels, as I recall the story Mm -hmm. being, um, on his side in this celestial conflict, and God cast them out. So Lucifer and this group of angels, this number of angels, were cast out of heaven, I presume then, to come and live on the earth. Yeah, so a lot of that's taken from Revelation chapter 12. Uh, Yes, it's Revelation 12. Right at the very beginning, um, verse 4, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Mm-hmm. And that third of the stars of heaven is, they say that typically is a possible reference to a war that yeah. casts angelic beings out. Yeah, and, and the Bible makes – through from the beginning where you have uh, Satan taking the form of the serpent uh, to the end where, where the Apostle Paul says that when we are in heaven that God will call upon us to judge the angels, which is kind of a, a bizarre thing. You know, you think of angels as being above humanity, but in heaven uh, God will take his redeemed and we will judge these fallen angels. Um and, and the same way in, in Revelation chapter 12, it also ta- says that yeah, the great dragon will be hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. It says he's hurled to the earth and all the angels with him. Um, so that's the idea that there's this great rebellion in heaven and these angels align themselves, which would, we would call the demonic realm, the spiritual wickedness um, is on the earth and they're – they're trying to torment. If you want a, a good look into the 
Demonic Realm are a fun read that's really pretty provoking, thought-provoking. Uh, C.S. Lewis, The Screwtape Letters, you know, is a book that I always think of when I think of um, demonic warfare and what spiritual attacks look like. It's it's a book that takes the perspective of angels trying to get human beings or one particular human being to stumble um, and to walk away from God and miss the boat of salvation. Mm-hmm. So just to try to help people keep the cast of characters straight, you know, we've, we've been talking about Lucifer. The name mm-hmm. Lucifer just means – what does mean like shining one or bright mm-hmm. bright one? That's why light call, bearer, yeah. Light bearer. Um, so so the first thing you need to get out of your mind is that when we're talking about – and because and, we have this picture, I think, in, again, American pop culture of Satan or the devil as being this guy who wears a red pitch – you know, red union suit carries a pitchfork <laughs> and he's got horns and a tail and, and whatnot. And snarls. Um, Satan, or I guess I'm, I'm told sometimes I pronounce that wrong. It is Satan. Satan. It, Satan. Yeah. Um, it's a Hebrew term meaning adversary, right? It just means mm-hmm. the adversary. So it's describing the actions of, and we, we make the connection between Lucifer, who, who we know has fallen, this fallen angel, and Satan. Um, so we say Lucifer and Satan are one and the same, and I think that they are, but we also recognize that Lucifer is sort of describing his appearance. He's, he's a light bearer. He's a, he's a shining one. He looked, he was angelic. He looked beautiful. Mm-hmm. He was a beautiful creation of God. And Satan, meaning this adversary, somebody who's, ad, who's taking an adversarial position to both us and God, mm-hmm. these angelic beings that we're talking about here um, very definitely could appear in the form as a, nat- as a normal uh, person, we have stories throughout mm-hmm. the Old Testament where they absolutely looked just like people, and it didn't mean that, they, and they didn't go through the whole incarnation process. This was just a form that they could take. The angels that came to uh, Sodom and Gomorrah mm-hmm. appeared to be men. The angels that were with, uh, you know, Jesus, and when he came to Abraham in the tents, appeared to be men. Mm-hmm. So certainly, angels can take on, uh, you know, human form if that's if that's something that they want to do, if that's part of yeah. what they're doing. Yeah, where is it in the New Testament where it says, you know, to be to be hospitable to all men because you never know when you might be entertaining angels, which right. is kind of a, with this crazy, like, wow, you know, like that still happens. So this idea that there are these beings that are maybe still among us to this day even. Yeah. So there's an awful lot about this. There's a – I think sometimes that we get so caught up in the physical, material – realm of life in this world and including life within the church because the church is a whole lot of dealing with the physical realities of things we've got we have people that we minister to who need help in every form and fashion Mm -hmm. all the time we take care of people that need they need help financially they need help with spiritual counseling they need help with with food and housing and we take care of a, a lot of people's physical needs even as we seek to address their spiritual needs and we sometimes forget, Sam, that there is this really, I mean, how is this a silly yeah. phrase to say, larger than life, you know, mm-hmm. supernatural world out there where these and these celestial beings have been engaged in a in a is it is it a war, a battle? I don't know how you describe it. Yeah, you know, it's like I mean, there's a conflict. Paul puts it that way. You know, he says we don't war against flesh and blood. Um, but against these principalities and spirits of the air, like it's he's absolutely recognizing. And and the West, you know, modern Americans, we view ourselves as too smart to believe in these things. You right, know, that right. it's all you know chemical imbalances in the brain or some kind of a, 
you go to anywhere else in the world, um, just about, and they're you know outside of the Western civilization, and they're absolutely convinced of this stuff. You know, and I can remember being on mission trips in third world countries, and you know they hear that you're a pastor, and they absolutely want you to come and lay hands and pray, and you know they're they're more convinced of this. And you know I remember hearing somebody talk about how we look at this and go, we're we're too smart for this. Um, we we don't believe in a demonic realm where you know there's spiritual influences that make us you know more evil or more susceptible to evil. And uh, I was listening to a Keller sermon one time where he brought up you know you know it's it was in the most cultured civilization Germany where they had the best symphonies they had the best composers they had the most advanced scientists they had everything that modernity would hold up and say look at us look at us modern humans, we've made it. We don't need God anymore. We're self-sufficient. We can do all this. We have all the medicines and technologies and everything else. And Germany uh, was was the center of that. You know, they were producing all the best. Mm-hmm. And look at what they did. You know, they, they devolved in a matter of a couple of decades into one of the most wicked, I mean, talking about the, the Holocaust, and and what they fell into in, in Nazi fascism, within a couple of decades, these people who were seen as, you know, the most noble civilization on the planet, the, the cutting edge and all the ways that matter, arts and everything else, and they devolved into such wickedness. How mm-hmm. does that happen naturally? Mm. Um, you know, without some kind of demonic just – rush that grabs hold and we look at ourselves and we go that could never happen to us you know Mm. we would never do such a thing Mm. and the reality is is but for the grace of god there there we go you know and i do think that when you look at such atrocities like that where you could send millions of people up in smoke i mean think of the evil of that and the separations of families and crying moms and children and just to be so cold to it Hmm. Um, you know, these are these are pe- real people that existed in in a lot of you know people who are listening in lifetimes, um, and that's just wild to me. You hmm. know, but we think, oh no, 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 that would never happen again. I think evil. You know, we want to deny the existence of evil. No, 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 evil is very real, hmm. and it's not just chemical impulses bouncing around in our bodies. Um, there's a very real presence of evil, and if mm-hmm. it, I've sensed it myself, and it's not this—it's not a nameless, faceless void kind mm-hmm. of thing. It's—it's it's, it, there are evil beings, evil de- you know, spiritual beings out there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know. Then to to kind of try <laughs> to try to sort of wrap this up so that we can move on to the next <laughs> next part, the next statement, the next paragraph. We're still in the first four <laughs> verses here. How do we then kind of wrap this up? I mean, we 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 do. I think we both agree that it, that to say that the Nephilim, or that this situation, the sons of God and the daughters of man, to to lay that off as being the line of the descendants of of Seth and of Cain, was that that's not that's really got too many problems with you yeah. know genetic or, or how do we gen, you got gender problems there is what I'm saying. You got gender problems there because like there's no daughters of God, right? You know, it it just and that there's doesn't a problem seem logical. Yeah, there there is a problem with it. And so the other side of this is, I think part of this teaching. This is personal opinion. So every position here has some. Well, what about this? You yes. Know? 
So, so where I go is I think what this is is God is coming to a world back in, in these ancient days. All the cultures that emerge after the Tower of Babel are going to be obsessed with the idea of demigods. Uh, anywhere you go, you have you know these characters that are half man, half this god, sure. half man, half this god. You know, there's there's laws in the Old Testament that prevented this is going to be probably maybe a little graphic, but that prevented human beings from having sex with animals because people that was a problem. So it's in the law of Moses that you weren't allowed to do that because people were obsessed with this idea of creating demigods, um, where they wanted to create this unique creature, and so. I think one of the things that happens here is God is saying, I'm putting an end to all that. This will not happen anymore. After the flood, this is done. The angels are put in their you know, punishment. This is, this is no longer an option. So he's, I think he's doing away with the idea of demigods for the rest of Scripture. Okay. So, so we are saying, we are, we are suggesting that, that it's probable or likely or certainly a reasonable interpretation to say that in this time before the flood – that some of these fallen angelic beings, these fallen angels, mm. had taken up residence on the earth and were mm-hmm. causing trouble <laughs> in right. some way. You know, whatever it was they were doing um, was causing trouble, but they weren't necessarily, they didn't necessarily have to be connected to the Nephilim. The Nephilim yeah. could be some different segment of yeah. people. So, like, in verse 4, it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. So right. it gives the sense they're already here, and they're going to be there afterward at the time when the sons of God were doing this with the daughters of men and okay. having children with them. So they're having different children, but the Nephilim are going to continue after the flood, which seems to be done away with when you get to the New Testament, that these angels are put away to not be allowed to do that anymore. And so okay. the Nephilim just generally means fallen ones. So then maybe what we're dealing there with the term Nephilim, we're talking about like a classification of people. Like there's, they're just these really sort of remarkable warriors, warriors, you know, that, that that's like a, a brand that they would call them. They, the, that being part of the lore of Israel, that when the spies saw these particular people, they went, those guys must be Nephilim, you know, that kind of a thing. <laughs> yeah. Is that what we're yeah. getting at, we're suggesting? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And because of that, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, re- translated this as giants. Right. Um, and, and so you see that in, like, I think, the, I think the King James Version might still use giants. Yeah, it calls them giants, I think. Yeah, yeah. and then later on, the different translations kept it Nephilim because, I mean, literally, it's fallen ones. And again, the idea is they're warriors, they're mighty men. They're kind of like Nimrod is described. He's a mighty warrior. So there were just some there were some really remarkable people, because the thing we have to remember, too, is that prior to the Great Flood that we and we talked about this last week in through these genealogies of the generations of Adam, these people were living hundreds of years and they were Mm -hmm. bearing children for centuries so there was certainly something about the physicality of pre-flood human beings that we Mm -hmm. could say we can agree is certainly much more robust than we are today Mm -hmm. so if there were you know so what might have been kind of normal like hey there's lots of nephilim before the flood after the flood if you saw somebody who was you know very powerful and you know big stature like goliath mm-hmm. was reported to be you would go that must be a nephilim you know it's like you you're you're making that connection in your brain yeah i think that's right so so it probably was that situation more than anything else it wasn't a situation because i've also heard people talk about how long can a nephilim tread water i've heard that question asked <laughs> 
because of the flood they lived because of the yeah. flood you know they, they and the other of course and the funny thing is now but that's where we, second peter 2 does away with that it says you know he judged all of them mm-hmm. but spared noah so you, you they have to be gone and yeah. so that's what causes the problem so we think we do think then that they show up afterward. They show up afterward, but again, as we're just saying, I think that's that's probably as much a label of they must be Nephilim, you know, as much as knowing for sure that they are Nephilim. And the other thing too to remember is that those spies were exaggerating. I mean, that's the other part of that story is that when they came back and told Moses, "We can't possibly go in there," they were exaggerating because you know Joshua proved them wrong. So the the spies weren't giving a true report. So a lot of them, a lot of that was like, um, you know, you don't want to go in there. Why? Oh, there's dinosaurs in there. There's dinosaurs in there? Yes, trust us. Don't go in there. The dinosaurs, they ate Bob. <laughs> it's okay. We won't go in there. So that kind of a thing. Yeah. Uh, so in that, in that Egyptian history thing yeah. that talks about these people, it's all in the same area. And so when you had the... Uh, the battle between the Egyptians going up to fight the Hittites, one of the most famous battles in all of history, um, where it's Ramses II, I forget the name of the Hittite uh, king at the time, but anyway, they're going to fight. It's a very, very famous battle, and they send scribes that are writing down all of the stuff that happens in the battle, and so one of the Egyptian scribes, whose name is Hori, he's mocking one of the other scribes, Amenemope, because he's cowardly and he's refusing to go into the cities. And so Hori writes this. This is straight out of Egyptian records. He says, The narrow defile or the narrow stretch of land is infested with these shasu, which means wanderers, and they're concealed between bushes. And he says some of them are four or five cubits from nose to foot. They're fierce of faith. Their heart is not mild, and they hearken not to coaxing. And so what it's saying is they're warriors, they're mean, they're fierce of face, and he says that they are four or five cubits. Now, an Egyptian cubit's 21 inches. And so if that's five, if there's five cubits times 21, you're talking 105 inches in total. You divide that, figure out what that is in feet, and you're getting up pretty close to nine feet, which is what Goliath is described as. Mm-hmm. And then all the artwork of the Egyptians amidst these people, the Shasu, they're dwarfed by them. They make them out to be giants. And so the idea that we're grasshoppers in their sight, which is what the the, the Hebrew spies say when they go into the land, yeah, they're they're shorter, but it, it's not we're not talking like fifty foot high giants. Right. That's never been the case. It's more like eight, nine feet. So the the world before the flood was a wild place. That's what we're, <laughs> that's what we're suggesting. Um, so let's get back to Genesis six in verse five. It reads, "The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually." That's a pretty sad reference. Yeah. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, this passage here, this paragraph here has always, in whenever I've read that, I find myself being caught up in this idea of God with this regret and grief and sorrow. What's being described here? I mean, God you know, is, this, yeah, this is kind of sad, you know? It really is. Um, 
and there's you know, if you understand the Hebrew, it actually brings something out that's really wonderful um, in kind of a sad way. But in verse six, it says the Lord was grieved, and the Hebrew word behind that word grief is the same Hebrew root when, if you remember, when Lamech has the son Noah. And, and he offers this prophetic utterance over Noah. He's hoping that his son Noah is going to be the Messiah that was promised in Genesis 3, the one that would reverse the curse of death and crush the head of the serpent. And mm-hmm. So Lamech says over his son, I'm going to call him Noah because he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. And so he's saying, I believe you're the one who's going to overcome the curse and you're going to comfort us. Well, the Hebrew root behind comfort is the same exact root that comes in this word, the Lord was grieved. And there's this, There's. it's almost kind of like the Lord was desperate to be comforted. He's so in turmoil at watching these people. And listen to how they're described, that every inclination of the thought of his heart was only evil all the time. It's like superlative after superlative, God is looking at these people and every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, nonstop, all the time. And so the Lord is looking and he's longing for comfort from this. I mean, we don't when we read the scriptures, we never view God with a sympathetic light. We just think, you know, you know what, he's he's this distant you know, objective, right. you know, he he doesn't care. And this is one of those verses that you come to that you see that he's crushed. You know, the the cry that Lamech has when he's saying, we're in such pain, maybe Noah will bring us some comfort. This verse is saying the Lord is longing for that comfort too. He's looking at a world that's a wreck, and he's hurting too. Mm. And so it says that he's grieved that he'd made man on the earth. His heart was filled with pain. Um, That's the NIV translation. But, But that's... That's it. He's grieved to his heart. And so why is he grieved? At this point, God has three options on the table. And, of course, he's already, he's already foreordained all of this. But his options are, I can totally annihilate mankind because I am too just and holy to allow this farce and evil and cruelty to continue. All this suffering that I'm watching on planet Earth from men and their wickedness and every intentions, only evil, all the time. I can wipe it all out or I can just allow it and let this be a mockery of the creation I intended and allow them to abuse each other forever and allow death to reign and not step in. Or the last option, which is the one that he chooses, is to give a fresh start to save one family and through that family to continue his promise that was made in Genesis 3 that through that family he's going to bring about a savior of the world that's going to redeem all of this and in his mind foreknowing all of this that he's ordained from the very beginning of the scriptures that he's had in his heart the whole time God is looking forward to what it's going to cost him to redeem this radically broken planet. And so in God's mind, when he, is, it's when he is grieved to his heart, he knows that it's going to cost the life of his son on a cross, that he is going to have to bear the cost of this. His son facing the torment of the wrath of God that's reserved for us and the father 
having to sever that relationship when his son is covered with our sin. God is looking forward, and he knows the cost of our redemption, and it grieves him. Mm. But he does not choose to just entirely annihilate us. Why? That would have been really simple, but there's one reason why God chose the ark rather than total annihilation. And the person listening to me on the other side of this microphone is the reason. Mm. God chose the cross even at this point. And he said, I'm not going to wipe them out. As much as it pains me, as much as I'm grieved, as much as I'm longing for comfort from this heartache, I'm going to step in and I'm going to give even more. I'm going to even give my son on a cross to make all this right. And from the days of Noah, that was ordained. Mm. You mentioned it earlier, the passage where um, Jesus is talking and he says that it's going to be that the the day the Son of Man comes back is going to be like it was in the days of Noah, mm-hmm. making, you know, to bring our mind back to the way things were in the days of Noah. And <clears throat> what's Jesus talking about? When Jesus says that the end of this world is going to be like the end of that first world, that it's going to be like it was in the days of Noah, I think he's saying that there's going to be this rising wickedness. Mm-hmm. And and I'm not going to and and as as tempting as it is to say, all right, that means we've got about a week left. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe, maybe. Um, but I, but I do have to say that you know, and I'm going to be 60, so I've got six decades of of experience of observing the way things are in the world. I would say to you that there's a rising level of wickedness. That it's like there's mm-hmm. a. Um, that instead of people becoming better and nicer to each other and more loving toward one another, that what we see is the exact opposite. I feel like it is getting closer and closer all the time to being the way that it was in the days of Noah. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's a part of me <laughs> that when I read this and then I read what Jesus said, I think, hmm, how long can it be? Um <laughs> Uh, I don't know. See, right there, there's going to be people that are like, Mark's setting dates again. No, 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 I'm not setting dates. <laughs> Jesus was really clear about that. No man knows the times. You know, we just he doesn't know when it's going to happen. Um, but he does give us that sign to say that it's going to be like it was in the days of Noah. And I think that was a specific callback to this rising level of wickedness, you know, sort of in the general populace. Mm-hmm. Before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about this and and in Matthew 24, Jesus talks about what it's going to be like in the last days. And, you know, it's it's famines and earthquakes and nation rising against nation and wars and rumors of wars. But the the thing that is most haunting to me of everything that he mentions in that, you know, there's going to be false prophets and lots of betrayals and all that kind of stuff. But he says, because lawlessness will be increased. This is verse 12 of Matthew 24. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Mm. And that is one of the most haunting verses, and you you kind of sense it in our world today. There's no charity anymore. There's no, you know, I, I don't give anyone the benefit of the doubt. If you're not in my tribe, I want you destroyed. And, and that is the way of our culture now, and I think it's exacerbated by the internet and social media you know there's no humi- there's no authentic humility anymore as there used to be and and the generations that have gone before us were just quick to tear each other down viciously um, 
And I think when, when it's talking, when God is looking down at his world in Genesis 6, I think that's the picture of what he sees. This mm-hmm. is a world where they are just shredding each other to pieces, and he is grieved in his heart. His heart is filled with pain. He's longing for comfort for the day when that will not be the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that same conversation that you're referring to that we had before we started recording um, you know, we talked about I talked about the specific ill I think that social media has brought. And and I'm not a Luddite. I'm a tech person. I'm a I'm a Facebooker and an Instagrammer and a guy I have a Twitter feed that I pay no attention to. Um <laughs> but I you know I've worked in technology and I've worked in internet related fields for an awful long time and um I've gotten a lot of benefit out of them, both professionally and also personally, relationships that have been formed with uh, distant family members and, and friends from years ago that have moved all around the country, but we've reconnected on social media. And I cherish all of those things. I, mm-hmm. you know, I really enjoy hearing from somebody who was a good friend 20 years ago that I've lost touch with that finds me on Facebook and kind of getting caught up on each other's lives. And so I, I, I appreciate all of that. But I also recognize that the ability that that social media has given us, which is specifically the ability for everybody to express an opinion instantly mm-hmm. on anything that anybody else says, has been, you know, it's it, I don't think it was the I don't think that it was the fire, but it's the gasoline that's been dumped on top of the fire mm-hmm. uh, that's that's caused the blaze that we have now because it's and and that what I said to you before the show was that. I would give up all of those good things. The, if we if we could roll the clocks back and say there will never be a MySpace or a Facebook or a Twitter or a, or an Instagram, it, not not getting rid of them now. The, the 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 horse has left the barn. Okay, the the damage has been done. I don't want to shut down social media now, but I would tell you I find myself thinking, yeah, I'd give up all of the good stuff as mm-hmm. much as I love it if we could have a world where this kind of stuff just had never existed. And yet there's a part of it, Sam, where I've got to say, and I think we all do that are reformed, that this is part of God's plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he's not surprised by it. No, for uh, sure. Uh, but know, I, I'm like, I'm probably even on the other side of you. Like I'm ready to start raising barns and turning my own. Butter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you're, you're, you're digging a hole in the backyard and, and, Lining the walls with concrete is what you're yeah, saying. I might be the Luddite, yeah. Yeah, I, well, I think I am. Uh, actually, you do have a hole in your backyard with walls lined with concrete, but you keep filling it with water and the kids swim in it. <laughs> that's right. That's so right. that's the that's the problem with it. Uh, but it is, you know, it, it is something that when we have to take a, a, a picture of the world of Noah to understand what it is that God is about to do with this flood – we don't have to imagine very far. We don't have to. We don't really have to stretch the limits of our imagination to say that there's a world where people where where it says every intention of the thoughts of their hearts are only evil mm-hmm. continually, like constantly. Yeah. That's pretty much 2020. Yeah, you know, on you know, planet and, Earth. And one of the other things that I just want to point out, and this is if you, if we get this right, it's really precious because God is about to lay down a worldwide judgment. And there's parts of that worldwide judgment that if you imagine, you, you let your imagination go, like, I mean, there's there's real people that are going to die in this flood. And, you know, the Lord's heart is, is mercy, but he will not be mocked in his justice either. Um, and so, like, the fact that he grieves 
and the fact that his heart is filled with pain is something of a comfort to me. You know, we you you, go, you flash forward to the New Testament, and the reality is this: the God of the flood is the same God who will walk to Jerusalem, Jesus in the flesh, and he's going to look at Jerusalem and he's going to weep over it. Right? He's going to weep over it and say, Oh, how I've longed to gather you to myself like a hen gathering her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. The same God that's on, on the Mount of Olives weeping over Jerusalem is the same brokenhearted God that's about, that pours forth the flood and the ancient world. And, and it's interesting, those two words, you know, that he's sorry and grieved. You know, when you get to Isaiah and our Savior is described, he's described with those same words. You know, he yeah. was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, sorrows yeah. and acquainted with grief. Yeah. Like, that's our Savior. This isn't a different God. He longs to be with his people, but we spit in his face. And if you would just avail yourself, here's the reality. Our Savior came into this world to bear the torrent, the flood of God's justice upon himself so that those who come to him will not have to. Mm -hmm. That is the reality of where we're going here. And he knows it's coming. He knows that there will be people who reject him. He knows that he's going to have to pay that cost. And that, I think, is the source. I'm going to do this, and there's still going to be people who reject me. Mm. And that is why Jesus is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. It's a God who desperately longs for people to come to him, and they are not willing. And he knows what lies in store because his justice can't be mocked. Mm. He's holy, you know. But yet he opens wide the gates of mercy for anyone to walk through, and people spit in his face. So we have the, uh, you know, we have this this world of Noah just before the flood. Uh, we have the description of Noah as being this person that has found favor uh, in the eyes of the Lord. Now the rest of chapter six, rather than read through the entire thing, um, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of repeating of the same things. It tells us that that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Talks about his three sons, and it tells us that the earth was corrupt and the earth was filled with violence. And that, you know, that God saw the earth and it was corrupt. He's basically repeating that what we've mm-hmm. already known here. And then he says that he wants Noah to build this ark. To, and he describes the size of the ark. Uh, he talks about it being, um, you know, 300 cubits long and 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. And um, so we're given some details about mm-hmm. the ark and how it is to be constructed. Um you know, one of the things that uh, I think that people who are um, kind of who are looking in from the outside, who are like, you know, you Christians, it's some weird stuff here. You know, <laughs> I don't know about all this. Um, you know, one of the one of the stories they hold up is they hold up the ark and they say, you know, I'm supposed to believe that there's two of every living thing on this boat. You know, and how big was that boat? Um I mean, we know how big the ark was because it tells us how big the ark was. And we know what God intended, which is that, you know, animals would be put into the ark two by two or whatever, male and female, so that they could repopulate the earth on the other side of the flood. Um, So just a short question right up front. Was the ark big enough to hold everything that it might reasonably have needed to to hold? Is that um, is that a reasonable thing given the size of the boat? Sure. Okay. 
<laughs> short answer. Yeah, short question, so, short answer. I mean, it gives us the measurements. And so you do, I mean, you do the math, it's got 1.5 million cubic feet of internal mm-hmm. storage space. Which is a lot. That's, I mean, that's a lot. But, you know, if you, if you talk with a lot of people who are skeptics, what they'll do is they'll go to every conceivable species and they'll, they'll say, okay, we have this many species and if we tried to fit them in there, you know, they would be, you know, either crammed or exploding or wouldn't fit at all. And, you know, I think one of the ways that you back off from that is, if I mean, understanding genetic stuff that comes out of animals. You know, you have genuses and species and sure, all that stuff. Sure. And so, you know, do you have to have every form of wild cat? Do you have to have every form of badger, dog, you know, <laughs> whatever? Yeah, right. I mean, that's going to be a crowded arc. Yeah. Uh, so the way that I've always understood it was pulling that back to where you had the – the, the the order that's going to come out from right. that, and this is not my specialty, by the way. Like I, I tend to say, okay, the Bible said it, so the truth is there, right? Um, and that's what I'm going to lean on. Well, a lot of it too is that, that you know we can't necessarily exclude the miraculous. I mean, like we we've been talking about the uh, story of Jonah at church this past week. Uh, that was the subject of the sermon last week, and our personal worship before that. And you talked about it at our men's breakfast this morning. Mm-hmm. And so, when somebody says to me, "Do you really believe that Jonah was swallowed by a fish?" I'm like, "Well, it's some kind of a big sea creature." Yeah, I think that something that was living in the water swallowed up Jonah. And Jonah lived in there? I'm like, yeah. How does Jonah survive in the belly of this fish? And I'm like, well, because God wanted him to. Yeah. You know, it's miraculous. God wanted him to survive for three days, and so he did. Yeah. So, so let me tell you what the Christians should not do. The Christians should not try to come up with a scientific formula that shows you how to survive in a fish for three days. Yes. The whole point of it is it's impossible. <laughs> it's true, like, actually. That is. It's, it's, oh, my goodness, God did something that's unusual. This is miraculous, right? Like, And so we try to make it not miraculous, which defeats the whole purpose of why it's there in the first place. Jesus is going to use the story of Jonah as the picture of his resurrection. Just as Jonah was in the fish for three days in the sea, so the Son of Man's going to be buried in, in the tomb for three days. Like, the I, resurrections aren't normal. <laughs> you yes. know, they're, they're not happening every other day. That's supernatural. That's the whole point. And so the same thing with the flood. Like, when you tell me that all these animals come marching up two by two to Noah, like, there's no magic scent. You know, it's not like he developed some hybrid <laughs> mixture of <laughs> deer pee and some <laughs> magic tree bark or something <laughs> you know, that made all the animals come. Like, that has to be supernatural. There's no, there's no animal whisperer on the planet that could make that happen. It right. has to be God. Otherwise, it falls apart. And so, like, I'm already telling you, it has to be supernatural. I'm not trying to say or convince you that there's some natural way in which this happens. It doesn't. Like, right. the whole point is this is supernatural. The other thing that's interesting to me about the Ark is this idea that, you know, he's going to tell them, I want you to take all these creatures and put it on. Noah did as God commanded him. And then before the flood happened, it says that God shut the door of the ark. Mm-hmm. Life goes within the ark, and then God shuts the door of the ark, and then death you know, comes on the earth, and the ark kind of navigates through that and, and preserves life throughout that flood of death, and then the door opens and life emerges. And we're meant to, to think about Jesus and the tomb in that regard. It's like, you know, Jesus is, dies on the cross, and they lay him in the tomb, and then they the stone is rolled in place, and then God 
opens the door to the tomb and life emerges. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of ways he could have chosen to do this, Sam. There's a lot of ways that God could have chosen to visit his judgment on the earth. He could have just had everybody but Noah topple over dead. Mm-hmm. But he didn't. You know, it's like he did this very dramatic, theatrical, in some sense, thing, because he wanted us to think about the fact that he preserves life within the ark mm-hmm. through the floodwaters of death because he wants us to look toward Jesus that way. It's absolutely pointing to the resurrection. So next week when we get into the flood, you'll see these parallels come together where it's it's really <laughs> pretty amazing. You know, like when the ark finally comes to land, and this is no accident, when the ark finally comes to land and rest on Mount Ararat, we're told that it comes to rest on Nisan 17. And Nisan 17 in the Bible is when you have all these amazing, miraculous deliverances happen. So, for example, the ark comes to rest from the floodwaters on Nisan 17. The Israelites will cross through the Red Sea, this new birth, which is also, by the way, compared to a baptism, just like Noah's ark is. They will come through the Red Sea on Nisan 17. They will go into the promised land, finally under Joshua, and eat the first fruits of of the promised land on Nisan 17. Esther the people of Israel will be delivered from genocide on Nisan 17. And guess what? Jesus is going to be resurrected on Nisan 17. So all of these dates and God's sovereignty, having them land on this particular day on the Hebrew calendar, which is Nisan 17, Nisan is a Hebrew month, all of them land on Nisan 17. And it's saying all of them, in a sense, are pictures of this resurrection. And what does that mean? Well, you know, when... Well, the Bible talks about Noah being blameless and upright, but it's so important in the story to recognize that Noah doesn't walk with God because he's righteous. He was considered righteous, right, because he walked with God. The Hebrew says this. It says, by faith, Noah, when he was warned about things not yet seen and holy fear built an ark to save his family, by faith, and this is the important part, by his faith, He became an heir of the righteousness that's in keeping with faith. And so what made Noah righteous? It wasn't that he walked around and was perfect and everything else. It's that he had faith. He trusted in the promise of God. And so when God said, hey, here's your opportunity of salvation, Noah. It's in the ark. Now come, come in. And it says Noah, by the way, is a preacher of righteousness. Second Peter 2.5 says Noah is a preacher of righteousness. And so I want you to get that as he's building this ark, he's going around to everybody saying, there's salvation over here. There's salvation over here. God has given me a message. He's, God is pleading through Noah for these people to be spared. And how many come? None. No one. None of them. Yeah. None. And so it's just Noah and his family. And you were mentioning the door. That is so like that's so rich, Mark, because it's the door that's going to mark the difference between life and death, as you mentioned. So everybody inside the door is going to be spared. Everybody outside of the door perishes. You 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 fast forward to Genesis 19 when you get to Sodom and Gomorrah, and you have another picture where everybody inside the door of Lot's house is going to be spared. Everybody outside the door is going to be judged. You fast forward to Moses and the story of the Passover, and everybody behind a door marked with blood is spared, but those Mm -hmm. who are not behind such doors are going to lose their firstborn. And, I mean, it just plays out throughout the Bible that those behind the door of salvation are delivered, Mm -hmm. and those who choose to remain outside of it 
perish. And when Jesus comes in the New Testament, what does he say? I am am the door. He is salvation. If you're in him, you're in the ark, the floodwaters. And what does the ark do, by the way? When these raging floodwaters are bashing against the walls and they destroy the rest of the world, it's the ark that bears the brunt of that storm. It's the ark that bears the floodwaters. The ark is punished, and everybody inside the ark has safety and life. Well, guess who the ark is? It's Jesus. Christ. And so when, when the New Testament comes along and says that the flood of Noah is a picture of baptism, that's what it's getting at. You know, we are in Christ. He has borne the punishment for us, and we come out of the waters cleansed with new life. That's, that's the idea. But he is the ark mm-hmm. that comes to rest on Nisan 17. Hmm. The gospel in Genesis, indeed. <laughs> yeah, it's rich. Well, why don't we let that stand as our last word? I think that's a good place to stop. Um, we hope that you've enjoyed uh, your time with us today in Genesis chapter 6. And next time, we're going to be getting into the actual flood itself and what takes place there. Um, and there are some just, you know, you, you think there's there's nothing left in the story of the ark after that? No, <laughs> there's plenty. So we'll be getting to that. Uh, we'll be getting to that next week. We hope that you'll uh, get back with us then. If you'd like to correspond with us, the email address was outofwater at riovistachurch.com, riovistachurch.com. You can also find all of the prior episodes of Out of Water there at riovistachurch.com slash outofwater, or you can find them on uh, Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or on Google Play. We'll be back next week with more of Genesis and the story of the flood, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.